Welcome, adventurers! This is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea. I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And I'm your co-host, Demi. And today we're continuing our series covering the Nation of Charleian and many of the characters that come from there who make up the bulk of the organization known as the Scions of the Seventh Dawn. Now, as we all know, this is one of the biggest, most important organizations to the life of the Warrior of Light. Yet previous to this, we haven't found really a place where they fit in our lore commentary. So now we're devoting lots of attention to talking about the many characters that we've known from the Scions. Well, there are a lot of them. <laughs> so we'll see how many episodes it takes. <laughs> Indeed, we thought that it would be a good idea to put them in with Charleian, seeing as the Scions of the Seventh Dawn were formed partially, if not completely, from an organization that existed thanks to the efforts of Louis-Sois Levoyeur, who of course came from Charleian and helped train a lot of the Archons, many of which of course ended up joining what was the Circle of Knowing and now today is the Scions of the Seventh Dawn. Indeed. And part of me really wants to go deep into Louis Swab, but we're not 1.0 players, and most of us will really kind of never know who he was, other than in legends and in stories. But there is plenty in the lore record about the organization he formed, the Circle of Knowing. Yeah, now the Circle of Knowing, like we said before, was founded by Louis Swab in order to save all who could be saved. That's a quote from the lore book. Now, unfortunately... This does diverge, as I'm sure you can tell if you've listened to our last episode, from what Charleian thought as important. Charleian is a very peaceful society, does not want to get into any sort of conflict, any sort of war, and the Circle of Knowing realized, and Louisois realized, that their efforts could end up meaning that they would have to play a part in some of these wars. So even though he came from Charleian, the Circle of Knowing ended up becoming an independent organization, as opposed to one that was affiliated with Charlene itself. Now, the thing about Louis Wall is he was an archon, he was a great scholar, but his specialty was in prophecies. So basically, he figured out that the Calamity was coming to Eorzea, and was like, Oh crap, lots of people are gonna die. I wanna help save them. Eorzea is pretty cool. Meanwhile, the rest of Charlene is like, nah, you can't interfere. Just, you just gotta let them die, man. Just forget about it. Just leave it be. We're not supposed to interfere. And Louis Wall was not cool with that. He wanted to save all that could be saved from this calamity that he knew was happening. So that was part of why he ended up making it more of an independent thing and not being like, well, we're archons. No, we're something else. That was what the Circle of Knowing was. And so a lot of the people who were initially part of the Circle of Knowing were indeed Archons. They were raised in Charleian for at least some parts of their life. And I think several of even the newer additions to the Scions, even though they never were part of the Circle of Knowing, also tend to follow that trend. I guess we'll, we'll use this as a segue into our first group of people who we'll be discussing today. And those are the Wonder Twins, Alphino and Alize. Yeah. Alphino is a very important character. He's always by the Warrior of Light's side. Seems at many times to have been kind of the second in command to Menphilia. And we see a lot of growth and change in Alphino through the course of the story. And of course, the big catalyst for that is the huge mistakes that he makes. <laughs> you know, he's a genuinely good-hearted person. No one ever doubts that he has the best of intentions. But let's look back at his childhood. He was born into a pretty prestigious family, 
His father is a member of the Forum, and he was also gifted, along with Alice, with a brilliant natural level of intelligence. So last episode, we discussed the Studium and how the twins entered at the age of 11, and how we believe that the Studium is at the level of a university, and this really does make them prodigies. It does, but honestly, I think more than Alize Alfano, knowing that he was going into the studium at such a young age and being considered like, wow, you're really smart, and having Charleyan promote that, I feel like that led him to becoming what I honestly think was very, 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 very annoying when we first meet him. Yeah, he gets an inflated sense of confidence that's sort of exacerbated by the fact that he is young and he hasn't really experienced much of the world. So he ends up looking pretty naive at times. He really believes maybe on some level that he knows everything, that he's smarter than everybody. And his attitude kind of shows, especially on my second replay, when you first see him interact with Alice, he really seems to think that he's smarter than her. And no, she knows everything explained. And it's like, come on, man, you know, you're supposed to be equals. It's like this holier-than-thou condescending thing, and thankfully, it does end up dying down a little bit following Heaven's Word, and I guess during that, and with the fall of the Crystal Braves and everything like that, I think that kind of put him in his place. But regardless of if you like it or hate him, I would argue that that attitude just came from that discussed idea that we talked about last episode, that knowledge takes priority, and so... It follows that if somebody learns very quickly, if they are a child prodigy like the twins were, they might be treated as being worth more, and that can go to their heads. That's my my theory as to why Alphano is the way that he is. Yeah, you can definitely see how it was a natural outgrowth of the environment that he grew up in. Now, at the end of 2.55, after the bloody banquet, the fall of the Crystal Braves, He is understandably absolutely broken and distraught and spends a little time kind of being mopey. And it takes Tataru and Yugiri and maybe the Warrior of Light too to cheer him up. But on the positive side, he doesn't spend an overly long time moping. And he decides, well, you know what? I have to make up for this. I have to get moving again. And I'm not even sure what the right path is. But all I know is that Eorzea still needs help. Obviously, we got to make the best of things in Ishgard. So let me just, you know, put my diplomacy skills to work here in Ishgard and try to build things back up. And he goes about it with a much more humble attitude the second time around, more pragmatic and realistic and more willing to share this leadership rather than just kind of dictating, this is my idea and it's brilliant and you should all follow it. Very thankfully. Actually, I know <laughs> even in Stormblood, Alize was like making fun of him using the phrase, as you doubtlessly are already aware. There is some sort of line where Alize was poking fun at him. And I think like even though he probably will be known for that for some time to come, he's getting better. <laughs> he's getting better. He's learning to move forward and he's learning he's learning yeah. a bit more of his strengths, just as Alize did. Yeah. But I never think of him as a bad guy. Just it's just that he's so young. And, I mean, who of us could have been, like, in the Scions at 16, right? I think that as Alice has gotten more attention in the MSQ, she's really become the fan favorite. <laughs> I think so. She is, she is pretty likable, and I think because she's always come really second to Alphino growing up, that made her a little bit more down-to-earth, or at least it makes her seem a bit more down-to-earth than Alphino was. But yeah. If you think about it in terms of, like, how would that have been in Charleian? You know, how might people have treated her in Charleian for 
being second to Alphano. Like, it feels like maybe, maybe Alize ended up feeling very isolated, very alone, because Alphano was hogging the spotlight, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, and they do have different personalities. You see that she has a more direct, honest, blunt, maybe a little bit harsh personality because she just wants to get things done. She ends up being more of a fighter. And if you pair this with the fact that she's falling behind Alphano intellectually, it probably made her feel inferior in a lot of ways because it's almost like if you're not number one, you might as well be on the bottom. And considering how much Charlene values diplomacy, and especially if they have this dad who is literally a diplomat, the lore book seems to imply that their parents actually treated Alice inferior, straight up, because she just didn't fit the model of what a perfect Charlene should be. Mm -hmm. Maybe they thought in a misguided way it would encourage her to be more like her brother, to be more of like the perfect intelligent diplomat and force her to get better, but that doesn't really work. Parents think it does. You just have to be yourself. It's silly to think of one of them as superior and inferior because they're just different and they have different strengths. They're complementing each other, not just being carbon copies of one another. Yeah, although I think that that treatment might have contributed to her ending up going her own way. Like being yeah. being treated as though she's inferior and realizing like, maybe I don't want to do things like the perfect Charlayne would. I think that led to a sort of rivalry with Alphino from the start as opposed to teamwork. And it wasn't until later on that they realized like together they can be a lot more than what they currently are just by themselves. Yeah, for sure. They work best when they work together with their own individual strengths, which was maybe what Louis Wall was trying to tell them in giving them these grimoires in a pair. Right. And since she was actually quite close with Louis Wall, maybe he understood that Alice's personality, though different, is just as valid because he was a little bit of a misfit in Charlayne too. You know, wanting to go off and save people rather than just sit back and write notes about history. So they had sort of a special bond. And maybe she feels like since he died that no one really understood her. So she did have to go her own way early in the MSQ, away from Alfino. And he understands that, okay, their goals are the same. It's not like they hate each other. They just have to part ways for a time. And we find out a little bit of what she got up to when we do the Binding Coil quests, of course, and her ending up getting some closure about her grandfather and learning to work together with Alfino as well. But we really find out some more interesting details much later in Tales from the Dragonsong War, where we find out about kind of the odd jobs that she took, how she just kind of went out into the world, forsook all of the privileges of being an important person and just kind of led a wanderer life. And that super heartbreaking story about like the merchant train, maybe she just wanted to see more of the little people of Eorzea, the average people. Whereas Alfino, he's basically dealing with the Eorzean alliance. He's dealing with the big, important, powerful people. Those are people, you know, we like them, but Alice kind of felt like they were all posing and they were trying to like rile up this patriotism with those speeches early in the MSQ and that they were rewriting history for their own convenience. Alfino might be able to see, well, that's kind of necessary. You have to have a way of bringing people together. All of them said that like our team fought the hardest at Cartineau and, you know, well, they can't all have fought the hardest, but that's what people needed to hear to bring them together. Does it really matter if it was necessarily true? I don't know. I, I would say in some ways, no, because you need morale in order for people to you know, not only follow orders, but follow them willingly, you know, to promote loyalty to the country. And 
even though I think you have the Eorzeans who do end up using diplomacy, there's still a large amount of contrast between the Eorzean Alliance and the Charleans. And I think, mm-hmm. I think Alize, in her wandering, in witnessing what the people of Eorzea do, I feel like that change of setting, that change of culture helped her to grow and figure out where her strengths were. Because, like, imagine if she were in Charleian, where they don't really want people to fight, they don't want people to really learn any martial arts or magic, unless, of course, it's for just storing up knowledge, you don't get any sort of chance to really fight. So I wonder, if she were in Charleian, would she have learned that she was a good red mage? Would she have encountered... What is it? I don't even remember the guy's name, but, like, the the red mage teacher? Zarun Tia? Yeah, she probably would never have encountered him. She probably uh, would not have been able to become the person that she is today. And I think she might feel a little bit more at home in Eorzea, where she has this chance to use force when needed, as opposed to where she was in Charleian and how she was treated by the people. Yeah, yeah. Eorzea, at the very least, has a more diverse set of people. It really does. So you can all pick individually which of the twins is your favorite, but I don't know. I can't pick. (laughs) Yeah, I can't pick either. I think Alphino initially was not a character that I particularly liked, but he really grew on me. And Alize has also grown on me over time. So they're both pretty cool. Yeah. And of course, in Stormblood, we got the super cute sibling bonding napping moment. Yeah, not to mention that even before that, you had the beginnings of a bond between Alize and Oriange, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they both seem like they're really mature, like, fighters and warriors, but again, the twins are still pretty young, whereas Oriange seems to have almost been like a big brother figure to them when they were growing up. Yeah, I think the both of them have really found their places within the Scions, and I think Oriange was the link to that. So with that said, let's go into him, because he's, he's a bit of a strange one, I think. Yeah, that's definitely true. He was always kind of that weird guy in the corner. I think it was my first impression on playing the MSQ. But actually, over time, he grew to be one of my favorites, just because the mystery was kind of intriguing to me. Yeah, one of the first mysteries I actually had, which I didn't know the answer to until very, very recently, was why in the world does he speak so strangely? Like all the these and the thous and... The Middle English-y thing. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And so what I found out, thanks to our handy-dandy lore book, was that the reason why he speaks so differently from everybody else was because pretty much all he did when he was a kid was he just studied books. Reading, I guess, older books ended up leaving an impression on him. And so that's why he speaks it the way he does. What that resulted in was making him stand out. You know, if you speak that way from even a very young age, you know, kids might end up being kids. They find something different and they're like, this is weird. I don't know that I like it. And so they just kind of ignored him, even though he was promoting the same ideals that Charlene supports. Yeah. The thing was that he was always really fascinated with prophecies, and Mm. prophecies tend to be written in this really poetic way. So in addition to using different words, he almost had this like poetic, metaphorical way of speaking, which in the long run, yeah, he was able to hook up with Louis who was an expert in that field as well. 
and, you know, get his Archon PhD in Arcane Study and Prophecy. But growing up, it didn't serve him as well until he met another fellow student who was much more on the outgoing end, Moonbrita. And she was just as scholarly and brilliant as he was, but she had more of the friendly extroverted personality. So when she decided, I want to be friends with this kid, he seems kind of interesting. Well, Urianje had already kind of developed this shy personality from being shunned from kids. So he apparently ignored her. <laughs> and uh, Moonbrita was just too stubborn to let him get away. And she just kept uh, pestering him, is the word that the lore book uses. <laughs> and pestering and pestering him. <laughs> Until finally he was like, okay, I'll be your friend, I guess. I think he, <laughs> he does not regret that, though. <laughs> no, it does say that Moonbrita helped him enter the studium. It was thanks to her help. You know, she maybe doesn't fit the stereotype of the stuffy scholar, but she is an archon as well. Her specialty was in Aetheric Studies, and she was really great friends with the rest of the Circle of Knowing. The thing was that she was commanded by Louis Soi to stay in Charlene. So she kind of lost touch with everybody. She lost touch with Irianje and doesn't reappear until a realm born and unfortunately has to make a noble sacrifice. So we don't get to see more of her. Very sad. And the saddest thing of all is that it's only after she dies that Irianje was like, wow, damn it. I never noticed it, but like, we were really close and I really cared about her and she really cared about me. And Aww. I never noticed. And it was, it's really heartbreaking. I'm never, ever going to get over that. I really shipped it so hard. <laughs> I did too. I did sniff, too. Sniff, sniff. But what I think, what I think was more disappointing for me was that because of how little we get to see Monbrita, like I didn't get to know her as well as I would have liked to. It seemed like she was only in there for a brief moment and she didn't have a chance to grow. Whereas Orianje, I mean, he hadn't grown a whole lot. He hadn't developed a whole lot until after that point. But I wish we could have seen a little bit more of Moonbrita and Orianje's interactions as opposed to, ah, yes, we were friends at school and I really cared about her later on. And, and I, I wish we got to see a little bit more of the two of them together. Yeah. Before that sacrifice would have had to been made. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, we may get some backstory in the past. I like Moonbrita, but we only really got the vaguest sketch of what her personality is. But I have seen some good roleplay, I'll tell you that, <laughs> of people that have extrapolated and fleshed it out. Now, from this point, Orianje just honestly kind of takes a back seat and hangs out in the Rising Stones all alone doing his book research thing, but probably also moping a lot. And he doesn't really come back around as a powerful force until patch 3.4. I'm not even going to really pretend that I understand all of the metaphysics of his plan with the Warriors of Darkness, with Menphilia, using Menphilia's Hydaelyn powers to absolve the Warrior of Darkness's spirits back into the life stream, and there's Asians involved, and oh, I really am not going to pretend like I totally understand the metaphysics of that, but I know that the effect is... For one thing, Urianje could only pull off this plan if he deceived all of his friends and pretended to go along with the Asians and the Warriors of Darkness. And that's why he's wearing this mask. You know, after we get out of Zelfatal, which just so happens to cover all of the parts of his face that his normal outfit doesn't cover. 
Then when you see him again, when you, you know, kind of figure out it's him, he's back with his hood and goggles. And you're like, oh, before we could see his eyes and his head. And it's kind of funny how they did that. They made that character design choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, it became pretty clear pretty quickly who the mysterious masked man was. But in the end, he revealed his identity as having worked with the Asians with his major plan that would ultimately help the Warriors of Darkness, help Minfilia, but also kind of make it so Minfilia could never come back. As I said, lots of metaphysics, like go watch an Ethis Asher video. That's that's his thing. <laughs> We're here for characters, right? So all I know is at the end of that, I was really happy about the character development and growth that Rian and Jay showed. The most interesting point is that the Asians did not suspect that Urian Jay was playing as a double agent because they look at him and they see a guy who is the classic, like we were saying, book smart, intelligent. They see him as logical and they thought that they could logically convince him that the Asians plan was the correct one. It was the only way to save the planet. And so they didn't doubt his motivations. And I'm just reminded just because I'm a huge Star Trek fan of the Spock trope. Sometimes people want to be perfectly logical beings or think of themselves that way, but that's not the way human beings are. Now, in Spock's case, it's because he's half human, half Vulcan, but in Orianje's case, it's more of like, this is his self-professed identity of the guy that goes by the book. And he learns, unfortunately, through this great loss of Moonbrita, that he is a human and he cares about people. He is a creature of emotion as well as logic. So he brings those two parts of himself together, using his emotion and wanting to help his friends and even to help the Warriors of Darkness, which honestly, we end up kind of sympathizing with, you know, like they're not inherently bad, but he uses his smarts to pull off this ingenious plan that will get everybody kind of saved in the end. And even though he says, you know, to Alice, I'm sorry that you may never forgive me for this, but this is what I feel is right. I enjoyed that a ton. Because it just showed the development of his character from an almost like hyper logical person to a person that realizes that his friends are valuable. Mm-hmm. I think it showed, it showed, and that entire arc showed that, you know, not only is Urianje willing to go over to the other side if it ends up assisting everybody in the long run, but it really showed that the Warriors of Darkness were complex beings. And I think that all of that ends up coming together in creating just a really nicely created arc. Oh yeah, I enjoyed it a ton, even though the metaphysics stuff was like, whoosh, over my head. (laughs) Of like, aether physics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just blame it on the Asians. (laughs) Yeah, 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 it all was kind of their fault anyway, right? Right, and we will leave it at that. (laughs) All right, so that's like four scions? (laughs) yeah. Four scions. How many more do we have left? So we have, I believe, six more scions that we were planning on talking about. But because one oh of these scions, <laughs> one of these scions is going to spend like an entire episode. We will take an entire episode just talking about oh her. What we are going to do is we are going to go back to character creation. We will catch up with Remix's friend Russ and his character Risrael. And we will check in on him and see how he is doing and his discoveries as he has started to roleplay with his character. And after that, we'll come back to our scions and talk more about them. 
Yeah. It may actually end up being our longest series of episodes, breaking the record set by Ulda. <laughs> I think Ishgard, no, Ishgard took two, didn't it? Yeah, it did. Yeah, so we we will have a, a segment that's longer than Ulda, which I'm very surprised about. But it's a good thing, I think. <laughs> I mean, the Scions are some of the most important characters in the whole game. They're with you through every arc. So I believe they're worth talking about. I think so, too. Awesome. So that's Charlayne and the Scions Part 2 of... Four? <laughs> I suppose so. Awesome. Yeah, so until that time, though, let's move into our next segment. Every episode, because we love playing the game so very much, we like to share a little story of something that has happened between now and the last time that we did an episode. It can be in-game, out-of-game, in-character, out-of-character, just something that relates to FF14. So I guess I will start for this episode. And... I haven't been up to a whole lot recently. It's been more focused on, you know, now that a stage reborn is done, what is there left to do before the next patch? You know, I've done all the raiding that I want to do. I have been pretty much just decorating various houses. That's been about it until, of course, the 4.1 trailer came out. And, you know, there's always hype associated with that. But what I found very exciting somewhat dismaying to some respect, but but also very exciting, was the very, very beginning of that trailer. And you hear Lolorito talking about, like, assassinating somebody. And then you see, you see, of course, that Nanamo, it's clearly Nanamo, by the way, uh, but there's, there's a character with pink hair whose hairstyle looks a whole lot like Nanamo's, wearing... A mask that looks a lot like Lolorito's. And I wonder, what was she doing in there? So the first thing that I wanted to figure out was, where is she? So I headed over to the Waking Sands and figured out exactly where in that location she was. And I have so many questions as to why is she in the Waking Sands? Why is she wearing Lolorito's mask? Is it a result of the bloody banquet? Is it increased security presence? What is it? But then I decided, well, she has this, and I happen to have this particular mask on my Nanamo character on Lich. So seeing as Nanamo is beginning her journey into Stormblood, I decided that that was going to be her new outfit for Stormblood, just all throughout Stormblood. And so I glamoured it, like, an hour after the trailer had come out. Or it was like a an hour after, basically, I had seen the trailer. And so that's that's really what I've been up to. I've been preparing Nanamo to get through Stormblood, and I'm really nervous about going through everything as a bard because I'm used to tanking. I'm a lot better at tanking than I am as a bard. But I'm excited for this, and I'm excited also because Remix's character, I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Remix's character used to jump potion in order to get Melvib to become a machinist. So she finally has a gun. Yeah, that is one of my stories. Yeah. So so I'm hoping that once you end up getting to Stormblood, if you're not already there, I don't know how far you are right now, but once you get there, going through that together as like Nanamo in this disguise as a bard, and then Melviv as a machinist, I think will be a lot of fun. Well, she's also in disguise because I made a Mistbeard Glamour I see. complete with mask. <laughs> yeah, so that's a story. After the last storytime stream I did with Merlvib, which was patch 2.2, Merlvib on Merlvib action. 
What kind of title <laughs> is that? <laughs> you know, because it was like my player character in 2.2 with Leviathan interacting with the NPC. And there were many screenshots taken. You would not see me doing that. You would not see me giving that sort of title. Because, like, I do. I love, I love, <laughs> love, love having my character interact with herself. It's like, yes, <laughs> I need to find out what the Sultana's favorite food is. Hmm, I wonder what it could be. Let's ask around. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I actually recorded when my Mrovip character did the level 50 culinary quest. I have video of it. Yay! <laughs> I did not get video oh, of that, but I should at least film that cutscene. Yeah. That's another thing on my wish list for the next uh, voice RP. Like, after Lolorito was summarily taken down by the Warrior of Light's amazing cooking, what kind of conversation did they have? Like, I think that Moab was, like, laughing her ass off mm-hmm. <laughs> at how hard he got trolled. Uh, so many side projects. I mean, for me, it's mostly about things that are upcoming. We got the All Saints Wake Party on Lich. We got the All Saints Wake Party on Gilgamesh. And I've been trying to level up Beast Tribes because we're starting sometime in the future to write an episode on Beast Tribe RP. Yeah, I got to level up all my Beast Tribes. I never did any aside from the Ixal and the Moogle. So I'm like, oh, man, I only get 12 allowances per day. Every day I'm grinding that. But yeah, what I learned is that the Job Jump Potion will actually grant you the ability to play as the Heavensward jobs, even if you're not up to Heavensward. Now, I was thinking this whole time, okay, I got to progress her up to Heavensward to unlock the job quests. But then the good folks in the Crucible Discord were like, no, the jump potion will do all your job quests for you. You could be a machinist or a dark knight or an astrologian, even in 2.x. And I'm like, really? Awesome. So I went to buy it, but I was a little bit disappointed when I realized after the fact that I wouldn't be able to do the job quest with my Amrovab character because the Machinist job quest includes a favorite NPC from 1.0, Rostenstall, Stallman, and that would be another interesting opportunity for screenshots. But I guess I'll just have to go back in the cutscenes. So yeah, she is finally Machinist. I'm so happy. She can pew pew. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I gotta look up the rotation, but all I know is that pew-pewing is fun. And I gave her the Mistbeard Glamour mask and Karimu coat and had to make a few compromises on the shoes, but did my best to make basically a female Mistbeard. <laughs> I'm excited to see this. I don't think I've seen that completed Glamour just yet. <laughs> it's looking good. And then I'll have my ninja as well. But yeah, I really just got to grind that MSQ because <laughs> I got no more story potions. Yeah. I I found that same problem when I leveled up Gilgamesh Nanamo, where she's still at the Sylphs, and yet she's a level 60 white mage, so I'm going to have to start grinding that up. Yeah. I mean, that said, like, I'm, I'm glad that you're trying to learn your class as opposed to, like, going into level 60 stuff and having no idea what you're doing. Yeah, I'm on the striking dummy. And it's tough because when you look up a guide for these things, they're all, like, level 70 guides now. Yeah. You know, like, how do I go and find a level 60 guide, but that is updated for like the changes in 4.0 it's a problem i've run into time after time because even like on my remix on excalibur she's just getting to like level 60 monk and it's like i want to learn how to play but there are no guides that are now still relevant for this particular point uh such as the altolic life (laughs) and another exciting thing that's actually coming up for me is the trials of bahamut 
real escape game in New York. And Emmy has already done it, but she doesn't want to spoil it for anybody that says yes to do it. That is <laughs> Including right. me. Yeah, no, I don't want to spoil the experience for anybody. So I decided I would not talk about it this episode. But maybe if you decide to talk about it for next episode, then we can compare our experiences. Yeah. New York City is coming on October 20th and 21st. And I wonder which other cities are still coming up. But maybe when they're all done, then we'll then we'll give the spoilers <laughs> when all the cities are done. Yeah, it's an exciting time of year. It's going to be starlight soon. Man, I don't even want to start <sighs> thinking about starlight with all the, the All Saints Week things that are going on right now. Yeah, it's a big time for real life parties, RP parties, FC parties. Holiday season, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not to mention Patch 4.1 will probably be out by the time most people are listening to this. And look, you all know that we are hardcore team Ulda, but we are praying and holding hands and giving each other strength. We're like, please, everybody be safe. Everybody be safe. Also, Rabban needs to stay in Ulda. <laughs> I get so worried every time Rabban <laughs> appears in any sort of patch content. I'm just like, please save him. Please save him. You cannot do this. <laughs> you cannot yeah. kill him off. You cannot break my muse. Do I don't think do that they will. So here's hoping. I don't think that they will, but the fact that they're going on a flashback to that particular 1.0 scene is like... <gasps> <laughs> I'm so worried. I'm so worried he won't be coming back to... Ulta. We're going to be on Discord with each other nonstop, holding hands, crying from sadness and happiness. Please excuse <laughs> me while I casually panic off the mic. <laughs> so if you too, dear listener need support in this trying time of patch 4.1 get in touch with us perhaps you would like to join our discord yeah our discord is a great place to talk about <laughs> <It's a> support group <laughs> to talk about Uldan government <laughs> figures and also also really anything else lore related so if you would like to go and visit that just go to our website www.musecastxiv.com and go to our contact page or just look on the right side of the page and there should be a link over there that will direct you to our Discord. Indeed. We also have Twitter, MusecastXIV, Facebook, same thing. On Tumblr as well, you can follow right from our website. And in addition, we're ramping up our schedule for Twitch. And another upcoming event, which we will have more info on soon, will be Extra Life, in which we will be streaming for hours upon hours upon hours with the rest of the FFXIV content creator team for a good cause, children's hospitals. So be sure to follow us on your preferred social media site for more info. Indeed, and Remix has already very generously listed all of those previously. (laughs) (laughs) But if you would like to listen to more of our actual content, our episodes, you can always find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you like what you heard and would like to help us out in some way, you can always donate to us either through a one-time donation using our PayPal or a monthly donation where, among other things, you can unlock access to bonus content, all the things that we wanted to talk about but just couldn't get to, and you can get access to our episodes 24 hours before they come out, which is always really cool. And that is available on our Patreon. Now, both of those can be found on our website, again, musecastxiv.com, Those are on the right side of the page. Just click on the shiny blue buttons. And I believe that covers that for all of our social media. In addition to social media, don't forget to follow us on Twitch. Our main show is called Sunday Storytime Stream, where one or both of us 
takes you through a journey through the MSQ of FF14 using one of our many, many alts. <laughs> Currently, I'm using Remix Sakura on Excalibur to get through Heavensward. Very nice. And I am beginning Stormblood with Nanamo on Lich. So that is where we are right now. Indeed. But the podcast always remains our main focus and talking about the things that are relevant to role players and listeners like you. So anytime you like, we are open to feedback, thoughts, and suggestions as well on any of our accounts. And speaking of, because we're doing a Beast Tribe episode, we are looking for people who are role-playing Beast Tribes. Like if you happen to play somebody who is a Sylph or an Ixal or a Moogle even. And or a like Dragon. Just, yeah. Or a Nath or a Kojin. Any of those. You can uh, send us an email at musecastxiv at gmail.com. Um, and we do accept text submissions, but if you'd like to be on the show, that's always an option, too. We we may be looking for you. Just one of the many upcoming episodes in the works. But again, on our very next episode, we will be checking back in with Risrael Klimbarvin of Gilgamesh to see what his roleplay experience has been like now that we have initiated him. What has been the effect? Well, we'll be seeing Russ again soon, and you too, listeners. We will be seeing you again next time. Take care and happy adventuring. Yep. See you next time. Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing Character Creation 102. Happy adventuring, and may you ever walk in the light of the crystals.